Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's fiction category manager. I'm here with my colleague, friend and crime queen, Sarah McDooling. How are you, Sarah? I'm good, thanks. And it's our delight to have back in the podcast studio a friend of Booktopia uh, and one of one of the world's, I'm going to say, or at least the English-speaking world's greatest living crime writers, one of the most highly sold authors, over six million copies in print. It's Michael Brobotham. Michael, thank you for joining us. It's wonderful, as always, to be here. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the new book? Uh, when You Were Mine is a standalone, um, which I know is going to disappoint a few people that wanted to see me... Uh, we continue the story of Cyrus Haven and Evie Cormack, uh, who were in my previous two books. I am back working with them at the moment, so there will be a Cyrus and Evie book next year. Uh, but this one's a standalone. Um, I like taking a break. It, it it's features a very, very strong female cast, which um, I've sort of become used to doing that now. Mm. I did with The Secret She Keeps uh, was told through points of view of two two women. This one... Uh, the narrator is Philomena McCarthy, who is a young policewoman in London working with the Metropolitan Police. And she's defied the odds to become a policewoman because she comes from a criminal family. Her f- father and her uncles are notorious London gangsters who purportedly have gone straight and are now property developers. And if you can see my fingers are making <laughs> making little sort of inverted commas. And... Um, but she knows that, uh, you know, she's got to try to escape that past. She's been lucky, really, to become a police officer with a background like hers. She's had nothing to do with her family for about 10 years. But um, uh, her life is going to be drawn back into their orbit, I suppose, uh, over the course of the book. I love it. Um, writing a standalone is exciting right it's a it's a chance to write in a new voice a new narrative world um does it terrify you um jumping into something new or 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 do you find it it's a it's a freeing process to escape um the regulars i mean uh, you know what my background was you know having been a journalist for many years i was a ghostwriter and i did 15 autobiographies for you know for 15 well-known people notable people and if my job was to capture their voice completely so that nobody recognised my fingerprints on it. And it meant that for that eight months or that year that I was working with, you know, whether it be Lulu or Jerry Hallowell or, or you know, Rolf Harris for my sins, <laughs> you know, I would, be, um, I would be trying to look at the world through their eyes. And I think writing a standalone allows me to do that, uh, to do something new. As much as I love my regular characters in a regular series... The chance to create someone new, to find a new voice, to look at the world through the eyes of a young, you know, young policewoman in London. And that to me, you know, anyone, you know, this is sort of radio as such, this is a podcast, but I am an ageing, greying, balding, grumpier by the day, middle-aged man. <laughs> and the idea I get a chance to write in the voice of a young mid-twenties policewoman uh, and try to do it so well, hopefully, if I do it well, because um, we all know women are the great readers of fiction, um, more so than men oftentimes, and they're also the great readers of crime fiction. Mm. And if I get it wrong, I'm sure they're going to be very quick to sort of point out, well, that's just a bloke 
trying to <laughs> pretend to be a woman. Uh, so to me, it's the ultimate challenge to, to capture a female voice and to do it well enough that people buy into the fact that Philomena McCarthy is a real person. I love Philomena McCarthy. Do you love Philomena McCarthy, Yeah, I was Sarah? just going to say, you totally nailed it. Not that <laughs> we expected anything else, but 100% love Philomena to the point where I know this is a standalone novel and um, I just wondered, will we see her again maybe? <laughs> it's really interesting. It's such a wonderfully delicious setup, the idea that, you know, even with a way without giving the, the ending of the book away, the idea that she has this family and the mm. idea that she still wants to, I mean, she, she becomes a police officer in the opening chapter. You know, she's 11 years old when the Tavistock bomb explodes in, 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 in London, you know, in the, in, in the May 7 bombings which saw bombs exploding on the underground. And she becomes a police officer because there's a young police officer that day that comforts her and she thinks, I want to do that. And so there is great scope for carrying on Philomena's career and, but having this criminal family that she's got to try to navigate knowing that her, her father, you know, um, is involved in all sorts of dubious, you know, projects. Um, there is great scope for, for more books. I'm just not sure whether I want to tackle a new, having mm. got even Cyrus underway, whether I want to tackle a new one. But look, it's, it says it's called a standalone. It's a standalone until I write another one. <laughs> I like that answer because it truly is delicious and a real origin story for a character that I feel, you know, there's. I'd love to. I'd love to read more down the down the line. Yeah. Well, it, never say never. I'm also very looking forward to the new Cyrus and Evie. So you know, I'm not, I'm not going to interrupt you, the flow. <laughs> but, um, it it is a it is a gorgeous setup you outlined. Um, you got a, a young cop who's hopeful um, and straight in a in a not um, <laughs> in a corrupt kind of establishment, um, you yeah, know, and it's it's set contemporarily. So, um, you yeah, know, Black Lives Matter and the distrust of the police are, are a thing, um, and she has this complex past uh, with uh, crooks <laughs> for parents and uncles, um, uh, but at the same time, you, you, like it sounds like a the perfect police procedural but at the same time you have a psychological element that gets introduced there where obsession and distrust become more and more potent mm. in your narrative without spoiling it yeah um, where do you think this sits do you or do you even do you yeah. even like you to play in, in, yeah. in subgenre terms um i don't think it's a police procedural because it's not about a crime that the police have to solve as such um mm. And, and I've always avoided police procedures because I think they're so a because I don't think I know enough about the way the police work, and b yep. b it's sort of very. I mean, anyone that knows anything about the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, particularly in the UK where where my books are set, knows that there are so so many strict laws about who you can interview and how you can interview and how long before you have to give them a break, and and it's so to me constricting, you know, um, as a writer. Whereas you know, in this case, I guess the seed of this the idea for the book. Um, because, you know, I guess, you know, Philomena is doing a regular shift at the police and she's called to a domestic abuse case, which is, you know, the bane of all police's life, really. It's the cases they hate the most. And I've talked to a lot of young police officers and they say the same thing because, you know, they're always difficult and oftentimes, you know, the victim isn't willing to press charges. Yeah. And so they can't really help them unless the victim is willing 
to go that step further and press charges. So in this case, Philomena rescues a young woman from a violent situation, Tempe, Tempe Brown, and it turns out that she's a mistress and the man that the perpetrator is a decorated London detective. Um, and straight away, this is where really the seed of the idea came from, is, is a year or two ago I, I watched a program about domestic abuse and it featured, it featured the fact that police officers do not investigate their own. You know, and and some of the some of the if you're a victim, you know, if you're if you're the spouse or the intimate partner of a police officer, and you are being abused, you will get very little help from the police. They will close ranks around their colleague, and and similarly, even if you wanted to go to a shelter, the police know where those shelters are. They're normally mm. private addresses. You they, mm. they also have access to all the computer systems that can track you down, no matter where you try to hide. There's nowhere you can run they will find you, you know, and I, I thought that was quite a terrifying situation to be in. So that was the scenario I set up with Philomena, you know, and this, this, this police officer who can destroy her career. He's much more senior. He's a pin-up boy for the London Metropolitan Police and he can destroy Philomena's career and yet she knows that he is an abuser. He hasn't just abused Tempe. There are other women who have been victims and so her sense of justice and her sense of right is going to collide very much with this man's corrupt practices. Yeah, we, were, so we were talking well about done. him earlier. Yeah, <laughs> we, what a character. We just kind of described him as misogyny incarnate. Yeah, pure evil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm one to often ask the questions of authors that they say I can't answer that, it's too spoilery. So um, you might need to tiptoe around this one or feel free to just say, no, next question. I want to talk a little bit about Tempe, mm. um, but this is a character that it, you hint at the blurb that she's not everything that she might seem at first. Um, but are you able to tell us a little bit about where the idea for Tempe came from without sort of spoiling too yeah. many details? I know. I can. T I think I can tell you a little bit. I mean, Tempe. You know, as I say, she is the victim, and she's always a victim. She doesn't. Nothing changes the fact that she is a victim in this story. Um, and she has been abused by this police officer and in many ways has been abused by life. Um, but, you know, she is damaged in some way. And, and I guess the other issue apart from domestic abuse and that issue, a hot button to me anyway, was the idea of toxic friendships. That we often have friends who, um, who cling and um, who cling so tightly that you cannot escape. It's almost like they resent you if you get a new friend or a new boyfriend or whatever because you are theirs. And so Tempe has this sense of she, she is completely blown over by Phil who's rescued her. I mean, the idea that this she's seen a woman stand up to a man. I mean, just take a man down, physically take him down. And so Tempe has just become besotted by Philomena and wants to be like her and to be friends with her. But, you know, over the course of the book, you see more and more how she begins to infiltrate herself into Phil's life and what seems like, you know, what could be this amazing sort of friendship, there's something not quite right about Tempe and Tempe's motives and where she's going with this. And so all of that is folded into the plot. Oh, this book is just so amazing. Hearing you talk about it just makes me want to read it all over again. Um, I want to 
to squeeze in a really frivolous pop culture question. Would you would you allow me that, Michael? Go for it. <laughs> so, te- uh, so um, Phil is does karate, and in the book there is a mention of Karate Kid and Cobra Kai. And I just recently <laughs> fell into a hole where all I watched was Cobra Kai until there was no more Cobra Kai. Are you yourself a fan? Look, it's funny. I've watched one or two episodes of it, <laughs> and. Um, it was only when I was doing the research on the karate element of Phil's uh, because I wanted her to to have this sort of, even though she's a small, I mean, she's not, she, she's she's quite small, mm. but because she's got these martial arts skills. But what I discovered from, you're not allowed to use, if you're a police officer, it is illegal to use any form of, of uh, force that hasn't been taught to you at the academy. Wow. And so... She, you know, and instinctively because she's learnt karate since she was since she was a child, and it it allows you to disable much larger, stronger people that attack you. So I, I was sort of doing some research into that, and then I discovered that the form of karate with the, the Cobra Kai, and then I watched a few episodes, and I thought, okay, because I'd watched <laughs> I, I'd watched the Karate Kid, I was there, I remember those movies. Wax on, wax on. Um, and. Um, and so, yeah, and so the reference came into it. I, hadn't, I haven't completely gone down the rabbit hole like you, though, Sarah. Oh, I, I was lost. <laughs> All I could consume was Cobra Kai until there was none left. But well, I enjoyed the reference. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're at it with frivolous, strange questions. I, 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 I want to ask about wedding planning. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, there's wedding bells ringing throughout this novel, um, you know, and the, the strap line is... Till death do us part, is that yeah. that's right? Um, I think it, this, this novel will just appeal to anyone who's tried to plan a wedding in the last 18 months with COVID and the catastrophe of, of trying to organise a marriage, um, even in the best of circumstances. Um, but I, I love Philomena's and, and her husband-to-be's uh, tenacity in going forward <laughs> with the wedding. The whole, you know, they've got people stalking them, uh, the parents are in trouble... Uh, their, their relationship is falling apart. Uh, the Philomena's <laughs> career is on the line. You know, murder is a, 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 a foot, but the wedding just goes forward. Got to do it. Well, particularly, you know, it's one of those things. Anyone that knows anything about particularly getting married in the UK, if you have a venue and it's like so hard to get the right venue, nothing is going to stop you because you can't suddenly say, "Oh, look, we've been sick. Can we put that off for a week?" No, you know, it's you know, it's short of being in an iron lung, you are marrying on that date. <laughs> Um, your readership, I imagine, is, is, is now hitting new heights, which I didn't even think is possible. Um, but you're, certainly your sales with us are huge. Uh, and with the pandemic, I, I imagine you haven't been going back to the UK, Europe or America. Um, do, do you feel like that's dodging a bullet in a, in a sense, that lets you continue the work and avoid some of the... Yeah. Or hard slog of, of author life? Or, or, or do you love that? Do you love going and meeting readers? There's nothing wrong with loving it. Yeah. No, I mean, look, I do. I do. I mean, one of the things, it's been my wife resents me at the moment because, <laughs> you know, I've been self-isolating for 27 years. So, <laughs> so COVID has meant absolutely no change. Aside from I haven't toured a book. You know, this will be the first. I, last year I didn't tour a book. This year, I will hopefully. You know, it's all planning that I will get out and meet people and tour this book. Um, but realistically, my life hasn't changed. If anything, you know, you know, every time I hear 
you know, people say or politicians say we're all in this together. I'm going, we're not actually, you know, because if, if anything, my book sales are up because with people locked down, mm. they bought books with their ears pinned back as you guys would have completely, un, you know, Booktopia realised that it's been an astonishing time to be selling books because people have been often locked in their homes and they're desperate for, for entertainment. So book sales are up, you know. Uh, I mean, last year, you know, last year I had, you know, I won my second gold dagger, you know, um, again during COVID, as much as I would have loved to have been in the UK, like the first time was an amazing sort of big black tie event. You know, this time it was done on Zoom. My wife was a bit resentful of that because she wanted to be in London so we could get, <laughs> but, you know, that's what life is. But, you know, I had the TV series The Secret She Keeps came out um, last year and it was not just a hit in Australia but it was one of the five most watched shows on the BBC and stream shows on the BBC last year. The first Huge. Australian first Australian show to ever premiere on BBC One uh, in prime time. Normally Australian dramas had been put in BBC Two or BBC Four or whatever. This went to BBC One. And so professionally, you know, 2021, uh, 2020, sorry, was one of the biggest years of my career and I feel guilty in a sense about that because you know the world's going to hell in a handbasket and and you know I can understand my wife resenting me um <laughs> it's not like you didn't work hard for it though no that's true and 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 uh, you know it's um you know I do miss the touring and I particularly because this year not only are they doing we'll be filming a second series of the secret she keeps in September but um they start filming you know world productions who made line of duty and and um the Bodyguard and the Bletchley Circle begin filming a Joe Lachlan series in September in the UK. Wow. Um, and I would love to tell you who is the star because it is a huge name, but I can't. But you're not allowed? I'm not allowed. Oh, that's cruel. <laughs> I know. Um, uh, but, you know, when it's announced, yeah, it, it's an astonishing that's cast. That's news. Yeah, it's, it's big news. Oh, um, my gosh, I can't wait. To um, so it's been, no, it's, it's, and I'd love to be there in September and I can't be, but, I mean, that's the least. I mean, there are far more people with far more important reasons to be overseas than me. I do have a daughter in L.A. who I haven't seen in a couple of years and I'm desperate to sort of mm. try to see her. Um, but, um, yeah, so it's, inter it's interesting talking about COVID because... I had this book was set contemporary, you know, uh, you know, in contemporary times, and and I had a lot of COVID references in there, and a lot of my publishers actually asked me to take them out. Oh. They said that it's actually they feel as though, and I hope they're right, that we are almost, you know, we're we're getting saturated, and also they think it dates the book too much. They think in a year or two, when when we're hopefully through this, God, for everyone's sake, we're through this. That it will date the book too quickly if you said if you if you so there are references in there a few but there were a lot of I mean I really had set this book in COVID times in the UK and then they sort of said can do you mind if you take that the references out and just have one or two yeah that's that's a tricky choice yeah. I hope they made the right one <laughs> yeah well because it's interesting the book before that you know um, when she was good actually the opening chapter says May two thousand and twenty. It's set in May 2000 and there's no reference to COVID because I wrote that book before COVID happened. Of and so well, that definitely dates it. That definitely <laughs> dates it, you know. So Officially dated. Yeah, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think they're probably, and it's funny, not just the UK publishers, the American publishers felt the same thing. I think it's the right call because there is a timelessness to your books so that you feel that you can read the older ones and they're still, like, yeah. 
they're not they don't feel dated and it's so. interesting particularly when you're writing in the first person present like i do it's so it's supposed to be present so you, they do date very quickly if you're reading about something that happened yeah. a long time ago I did want to ask a bit about um, having had the secret she keeps come out. Has it changed at all the way that you write? Do you have it in your head uh, that it, uh, that you write in a different way in terms of like a possible screen adaptation? Do you like cast the characters, or is that just <laughs> something that the readers do? Because I must admit, I was trying to think about who would be a good fill, and I just couldn't come up with <laughs> anyone who would do it justice. Um. No, I don't think about the only thing that I think about is really funny until I until I because I've been involved in the TV writing room for the Secret Keep series, so I know I, I know little things now about. But when I say budgets, things that are really expensive to film, like oh. if you set something on rain in rain, rain is really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whereas where it used to be aerial shots were really expensive. Now drones have made them cheap. You have drones flying everywhere, and that's fine. Um, but it used to be if you had to hire a helicopter to shoot something. Oh, that's very expensive, you know, and um, and it's why you know Matt Riley used to always say with his books, you know, that they'd never be made into films because you know the budgets would have to be so high. You'd be blowing up aircraft carriers <laughs> and the like. Um, but um, no, little things just stick. Occasionally, when I'm writing, I'm thinking about oh, they'd have trouble with that because if they were filming this before the watershed, you couldn't film that scene or whatever. But it's just a fleeting thought. I don't think about it at all in terms of. Um, in terms of, you know... The big it, movements of no, the big yeah. well, You know, I've waited a long time. When you think I've been writing now for... I worked out the other day that that first book, The Suspect, uh, that sold, you know, on, on the Joe Lock, first Joe Lachlan, was published in 2004, but I wrote the 117 pages in 2001, so 20 wow. years ago, and it triggered a bidding war at the beginning of 2002... Uh, at the London Book Fair, and that was the beginning of my fiction career. So it's coming up to 20 years. Um, Amazing. Life sentence. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's longer than a life sentence. Um, <laughs> do, do you think that um, you write, riffing off what Sarah asked, do, do you think your, your readership is changing in composition? Uh, I don't know. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really hard to tell. I know that um, characters like Evie Cormack, you know, um, have attracted even my daughters, you know, and, and younger people that read that. And, and, and I'm only, it's only anecdotal because you're getting messages mm. on, on Twitter or, or on Instagram where, you know, and of course they're the people that have Twitter and Instagram tend to be younger people. So you don't really know, you know, um, but I get the sense that it's attracted a whole lot of really, you know, young readers that are looking for... Um, exciting young characters, you know, in, in fiction. And I've made Cyrus Haven, you know, is probably his early 30s. I mean, Evie is sort of 18. So, you know, it's – and again, that's – you mentioned earlier about the challenge of, you know, writing as a, as a woman, the challenge of, of writing as a teenager. I'm now 60 years old. Um, it's a huge – you know, I've got – I've raised three daughters, so I've raised three teenagers. <laughs> and I draw a lot from them. Um, but I'm trying to sort of see if I can – challenge myself to capture those different voices one thing you said um last time we spoke on this podcast that i thought wrong really true is is that, that an author is only as good as his last novel um and that's that's the standard that you hold yourself to and i wonder um you know how you are reinventing yourself all the time and what's what's um 
What's capturing your attention now? Who do you like to read at the moment? Uh, what's capturing? I mean, you know, as much as I've adored spending a year with Philomena McCarthy, um, I'm back with Evie Cormack at the moment, mm. and I think she is the most remarkable character I've ever created, this idea of this very damaged individual who can tell when someone is lying and every day I think of, I look at the world and think, how would Evie see that? What would Evie do here? And um, that's quite exciting. Um, the best crime, we're talking about books I'm reading at the moment, I'm reading the new um, J.P. Pomare book, which is not out yet, it's coming out about the same time as my book. So you buy my book first and then you buy J.P.'s book. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the Last Guest, which um, I've read a couple of JP's, his first few, and he's such a talent. I, I envy mm. his youth because um, <laughs> he's got more years of writing ahead of him than I have of me uh, and his talent. Um, and uh, best crime novel I've read um, in, in recent times is the S.A. Crosby book Blacktop Wasteland, um, which is up for uh, the daggers are coming up again in the next, um, in next couple of weeks and, and I'm up for... Uh, not for a gold dagger this year. I, I'm shortlisted for the silver or the steel dagger, um, and uh, and I. But the gold. I mean, I think Blacktop Wasteland's a really good pick to win the gold dagger. It's uh, it's a wonderful crime novel. You heard it here, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> you have tantalisingly mentioned that your next book is going to be a Cyrus and Evie. Are you allowed to give us any kind of vague, vague details about what we might expect from that book? Um, yeah, I think for people that have read those earlier books, you know, Cyrus Haven had the tragic backstory that his entire family uh, were killed when he was 13 years old. When I said his entire family, his twin sisters, his mother and his father, and they were killed by Cyrus's brother, Elias, who when you meet him in the previous book, he's in Rampton, the secure psychiatric hospital where he's been for 17 years. Um, but in the new book, he is going to be coming out. What? <laughs> Terrific. He's, he's being released. So Cyrus has got that to worry about. And then Evie, who is now 18 and living with Cyrus in terms of, you know, she's uh, still as mercurial. She, he's convinced her to go back to school to try to get some form of education. But she is just called with mayhem wherever she goes. Mm -hmm. um, and you have that sort of, there is a crime you know, a missing woman that is in the midst of it all. And and I guess the area I'm investigating more in this book, which is it's a topical one actually, even having mentioned J.P. Pomare's new book that's coming out, is that idea of the Tinder, that sort of uh, people catfishing people online uh, and and Tinder dating. And um, and it's, it's quite a clever idea. Well, I hope it's a clever idea, but... <laughs> Evie, Evie thinks Cyrus, because Cyrus is now sort of hasn't got a girlfriend in this book, and Evie thinks Cyrus needs someone, so she invents a fake profile on Tinder to, to find him someone, and she catfishes Cyrus. So that's oh all. This is wild. I can't wait for this. So it's it's uh, it's all in there. Creepy and wild as always, Michael. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast again. Oh, it's a pleasure, guys. Thank you. You can get all of Michael's books at booktopia.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, 
head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au. Thank you.